that's mine. Yep. Good morning. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22? We're continuing today in our series on the cross-centered marriage. And today we're going to talk about how to talk rightly to someone who's done you wrong, which is extremely difficult. It is extremely difficult to know how to respond well to someone who has sinned against you. This is actually, this topic in this particular text is actually one of the reasons why I thought that doing a series called The Cross-Centered Marriage would be helpful. Today, if you're married, this is an, an, an absolutely non-negotiable needed skill. You've got to know how to do this. Um, you're going to have to learn how to do this. But you know what else? If you're a member of a church, say this church, uh, you're going to have to know how to do this as well. There, this is a skill that is important in so many areas of life. It's very important in marriage. It's very important in church membership, and that's just to name two. You know, I've long been convinced that if married couples would simply love one another the way that Jesus commands them to love their enemies, then most things would work themselves out quite well. Right? So if you're married, you've promised to love this person. You do love this person. You, you've connected with this person, uh, wants to walk with this person for a lifetime. And I've long been convinced that if in those moments when you find it difficult to live together, you just remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5:45, where he says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he who makes the sun rise, he makes the sun rise on the good and the evil and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Isn't that funny how, how if we would just love our spouse like Jesus wants us to love our enemy, most of the times our marriage would be, would be much, much better off. That's what we're going to talk about today. How to, how to love people when they are unlovable. Specifically, how to love people when they're sinning. How to love people when they're sinning against us. So look with me in Luke 22 at verse 45. Jesus has just ended his prayer to the Father. Exiting Gethsemane, it says in verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So how does Jesus respond When the disciples sin against him, kind of passively by falling asleep in the garden. How does Jesus respond when Judas actively sins against him by seeking to betray him with a kiss? How does Jesus respond when the posse of high priests 
come to sin against him. Well, the first thing to note is that he actually does respond. Okay, that's, that's an important thing to note. When the disciples are sleeping three times, he corrects them three times. In our text, we see that he rose from prayer and said to them, why are you sleeping? So when they are sinning against him, he responds. When Judas is sinning against him, he responds. Verse 48, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the priests and their entourage go to sin against him, he responds. You know, you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs. I was with you day after day in the temple. Why didn't you lay hands on me then? In fact, a little bit later in the text, in verse 60, we know that Peter sins against Jesus. And that Jesus is not directly in front of Peter in this moment. Jesus is in the middle of being, well, right before he's about to be handed over to be crucified. He's being tried by the chief priests. And Peter sins against him kind of across the way, kind of, kind of in the front yard as Jesus is in the house being questioned by the high priest, uh, the chief priest. And, and Peter denies him. And as he denies him, immediately while he was speaking, it says, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So that even in this particular instance, where Jesus isn't directly in front of the person who sinned against him, he still makes it a point to respond to Peter's sin. That's an important point, this idea that Jesus actually does respond to people when they sin against him. That's something to take home with us and, and think about and apply, not only in our marriage, but in our church and in our friendships. You know, there are various moments in the Gospels where the righteousness of Jesus genuinely surprises myself. And I think like I'm watching, uh, like, like I'm watching an amazing play in, in football or like I'm watching the X Games. I, I, I read the gospel sometimes and think, how did he do that? H how did he do that? And I'm not talking about the, the turning water into wine stuff. Like I, I really, I can't even imagine how he does that. I mean this, how does Jesus respond to people who sin against him without sinning? If you don't know that that's kind of like the baseline of human behavior, I'm sorry for your friends. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When a sinner gets sinned against, everybody in this room is a sinner, myself included. When a sinner gets sinned against, you're in one of the most explosive situations you'll ever be in. You're in a situation fraught with extreme dangers. So when I see Jesus responding to their sin... With righteousness, I, I feel like I just watched a triple backflip you know, on snowboarding on TV or something. How did he do that? There are just so many ways for this moment to go wrong. There's so many ways for this to go wrong. When you speak to someone who sinned against you, there's so many ways for that to go wrong. He could have gotten sinfully angry, obviously. He could have just wallowed in self-pity and not said anything. He could have crossed the line and become an accuser instead of a helper. There's so many ways for this to go wrong. And part of me is just surprised that he didn't say any, he, he didn't just walk away and didn't say anything at all. I'm kind of surprised by how often he says something. When you would think that maybe the most righteous way to go, maybe the most loving path to take is just to not say anything, right? I think sometimes we tell ourselves that because it's the easier way, by the way. I'm surprised by the number of times Jesus actually speaks up. Wouldn't it have been easier just to let it go? Well, then I thought, hold on, not so fast. Yes, yes. Speaking to someone about their sin is a minefield, 
It is dangerous. But silence is really dangerous too. I don't, I don't know if we understand how dangerous silence is when it comes to sin. You know, the Bible says that, that, faithful, wound, that faithful friends wound their friends. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That being a good friend sometimes means saying hard things to one another. We're supposed to go to our brother. Jesus teaches us this. We're supposed to go to our brother when they've sinned against us. Colossians 3.16 says that we're supposed to admonish one another. Romans 15, Paul is bragging on the Romans and says, I have full confidence that you are competent to counsel one another. Failing to do these things that the Bible commands is sin. Allowing this kind of silence to take place in our friendships, in our marriage, in our church is sin. God tells the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet. So that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require of the watchman's hand. He goes on to say to Ezekiel, If you see someone walking in sin, and you don't confront them about their sin, and they wind up not repenting, I'm going to require some of their guilt on you. Because you saw it happening and you said nothing. And friends, all too often I think we convince ourselves that we're taking the relational high road by tolerating people's sins when we see them rather than lovingly engage in the mess of helping them see that sin set straight by grace. Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 8, God condemns these false prophets, these false ministers, and he says this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. They've healed the wound of my people lightly. What does that mean? That means... They've treated these people who are deeply broken and hurting and full of difficulty as if they're fine. As if those sins aren't really as big a deal as they are. He says, they've treated the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So yeah, entering into conversations about people's sin is a scary thing. And yes, it is a minefield, but silence is far more dangerous than we often acknowledge. And far less loving, by the way, than we often acknowledge. You know, there are certain relationships where we've promised to love one another. We've made that promise in marriage. We've made that promise in church membership. We've given in those relationships one another explicit permission to help us grow in grace, to help us grow in Christ likeness. We promise to do the same for others. And it is plain unloving to simply stay silent because it is easier. There may be reasons to stay silent in regard to someone's sin. I don't have time to get into those. Most of the time, the temptation will be under the cloak of tolerance or unconditional love to take the easy way out. The way that isn't messy, 
the way that isn't costly and just leave it all alone. If you're on the church's email list, you'll be getting an email this week with all the scriptures that I use in this message. And I'll also be including an article or a link to an article from the Gospel Coalition called Why God's Love is Better Than Unconditional Love. Why God's Love is Better Than Unconditional Love. When we talk about love, when the world talks about love, we kind of say that the high point of love is unconditional love. But the gospel is better than unconditional love because the gospel does indeed meet us where we are, but it doesn't leave us there. The gospel comes to where we are, and Jesus in the gospel walks with us through the mess, which I think, by the way, is the reason we don't often engage one another in the way that I've just described. Because to help people in this way is messy. It's hard. It's wrought with complications. Taking it upon yourself, obeying God and responding to someone's sin, whether it be against you or not, is both biblical, necessary, and fraught with much potential sin. So hear what I'm saying. Not what I'm not saying. I'm saying we need to do more of this. But I'm saying if we don't do this wisely and carefully, it will really, it'll go really bad. Thankfully, all we have to do is watch Jesus do it and say, how do you do that? Because the gospel tells us this. Jesus is the model for our behavior and the means of growth in grace. Jesus is not just the model. He's not just the standard we set ourselves against, but he is that. But he's also, he's not just the standard. He's also our savior. He empowers us to do that which he calls us to. So we can look at Jesus and ask, how did Jesus talk rightly to people who treated him wrongly? And we can see both a model and the means to make this pretty big pivot in the way we love one another. Let's talk about his motivations and his methods. That's where all this is really going to come down to. What were Jesus's motives as he did this sort of thing? And what were his methods? We'll talk about motives first, obviously. That's, that's, that's probably the most important thing. Let's just say this. What is happening in your heart when you talk to someone else about their heart will dictate how that conversation goes. What is happening in your heart when you talk to someone else about their heart, will dictate how the conversation goes. Jesus had pure motives. Something we don't. Now, when we say pure motives, we kind of think of this idea that, that underneath, multi, there's, there's multiple layers of motives, and some of them are selfish, and so on and so forth. And that's a fine description of what we mean by, pure, by, by motives. And what we mean by when we talk about Jesus's motives is that he had this laser-like intensity, this complete focus on one thing. Jesus had only one motivation. Simply put, Jesus's heart was full of love. Jesus's heart was full of love. Now that sounds way too generic to be helpful. What do we mean when we say Jesus's heart was full of love? Because there's another word that can have a million definitions. Let's unpack that a little bit. Well, we're spending our time at the end of the book of Luke. But if you were to look at the end of the book of John, John does things a little differently. He shows us things that we don't see elsewhere. 
And one of the things we see in the book of John is a prayer that Jesus prays toward the end of his ministry called the high priestly prayer. Or it's referred to as the high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, we get a clear view of Jesus' heart. We get a clear view of what Jesus loves. We get a clear view of what motivates Jesus. So let's look at that passage as we try to understand what's in Jesus' heart. When we say that, that love was sort of the foundation in his heart, and it was the thing that allowed him to speak to other people well who had done him wrong, what do we mean by love? What, what does Jesus love? Well, John 17, 4, the whole chapter is great in your community groups. Uh, I would encourage you to read this chapter over the next couple of weeks. It's a, great, uh, it's a great parallel passage to Luke 22. But in John 17, verse 4, Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's leave this up here for a minute. As I ask you some questions, you can kind of mentally do a sentence diagram as we think through this verse, because this has just got all kinds of substance in it. What was Jesus' mission on earth? What was he here to do? Was he, was he seeking his glory or the Father's glory here on earth? Where was Jesus looking for his reward? What timeline was he operating on? From whom was Jesus seeking his reward? Was he seeking a reward from man or from God? Where was Jesus' identity rooted? In man or God? Here or eternity? You see, Jesus could go into, because this is what he loved, because this is what Jesus' love looked like, Jesus could go into every conversation without needing to win. He didn't need earthly vindication. He didn't need his name to be glorified in the moment. His timeline for seeking his glory was in the next world. He was here, here to bring glory to God, not to bring glory to himself. He was here to vindicate the Father, not to vindicate himself. Before you have your next argument, as if you could schedule these sorts of things, you ought to ask yourself these questions. What is my mission right now? Whose glory am I seeking? Am I looking for a reward now or in eternity? Whose approval am I seeking? Where's my identity rooted? You see, Jesus had all of that stuff right. That's how he did that. That's how he did that. That's how he was able to talk rightly to people who had treated him wrongly. He had all of these questions answered in the proper way. He was living in this world, in this earth, during his time here for the glory of the Father, not for his own glory. He knew that if he were faithful here, that God would reward him in eternity forever. And his identity wasn't rooted in what people thought of him. It was rooted in the glory he had with the Father from before the foundation of the earth. These questions, answering these questions with God and heaven, most of them, will make all the difference in your relationships. Because Jesus is properly weighted in the Father, all of these 
tipping points, these, these moments in a conversation and a relationship that can easily go wrong. You've all been there, I think. Where someone sins against you and you sin against them and then, and then they sin back against you and you're playing, you're playing hot potato with a hand grenade in the narrow hallway. That's how I describe it in, in marriage counseling. You know, there's this, this moment in, in marriage where you're, you're tossing the hand grenade back and forth, back and forth, and you're like, oh, I don't want to hold it, you hold it, and I don't want to hold it, you hold it. What you don't realize because you're a dumb sinner is you're in this narrow hallway and no one's getting out alive, right? It doesn't matter who's holding it, you're both dead. You're both going to be wounded. Stop playing hot potato with the hand grenade. Jesus has none of those impulses because he's secure in the Father. And he can just hold on to whatever comes his way and engage righteously when people treat him wrongly. More than capable. I mean, these, these deep things about his identity and his love not only made him capable of entering into these conversations, they compelled him to enter into these conversations. That's a little bit different point. Let me, let me explain. Not only could Jesus have these conversations because he had those questions answered, but because he had those questions answered in the way that he did, it compelled him to have hard conversations. Because... True love for God overflows into love for others. The upward always goes outward. So if Jesus loves God in eternity deeply, and that's all he's looking for is his reward. If, if, if he is looking forward to an eternal reward with the Father, and that's all he loves, then how does he love his neighbor as himself? He helps that person attain the thing that he wants for himself. He helps that person pursue the thing that he wants for himself, which is God. That's the only way you and I can enter into these conversations and not sin. Is to want for them what we want for ourselves deep down. And that is eternal joy in God. Any other agenda for these conversations will be a train wreck. You can have the facts on your side and you can still wreck the train. You can say it better than your spouse. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm not saying I'm Mr. Eloquent, but I do talk for a living. Can you imagine what it's like in our home? How easily I sin in this area against my wife. Because I can say it better doesn't mean I'm right, does it? So you can have the facts on your side. You can say it better. But if you have not love, this love, then you are like a clanging cymbal. Can you understand that in moments in your life when someone sinned against you, your response was to hold some cymbals in front of their face like a monkey? That's all that they heard. That's as that's, that's useful as it was. You see, because Jesus has this kind of love, because he's operating on this timeline, he's not only able to enter into these conversations, but he's compelled to. To love his neighbor as himself for Jesus is to help his neighbor find these treasures that he has, that he's seeking, that he loves. And sure enough, 
as you work your way through John 17, that upward prayer goes outward. And he says this in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So what is happening at Jesus' heart at a motivational level is that he has perfect love. And, the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear, which is what most of us have when we're engaged in these conversations. Fear of being disrespected, fear of being misunderstood, fear of being used, fear of being patronized. How do you replace those fears at work, in marriage, in the church? How do you replace those fears with the functional righteous equivalent Perfect love. Remember, Jesus isn't just the model for this. He's the means. Jesus didn't just tell us to do these things. He made it possible through the way that he lived and died as our sacrificial, atoning sacrifice to give us his righteousness, his real-time righteousness. If you will, before you have this next conversation, go to the Lord and say, I want to do this like Jesus did this. And believe that his righteousness is available to you by faith. You will see the Holy Spirit begin to change the way your relationships work. He loves God. He uses his time on earth to glorify God's name and entrust the glory of his name to God in eternity. He knows his identity is secure. He doesn't need to win an argument to feel respected. So those are his motives. Now let's talk about his methods. The most practical thing you can point to related to the way Jesus did this, to the actual tactics and methods, is patience. Patience on multiple levels. So the good news is all you need is patience. You'll be good to go. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, read this last week. It says, As we And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. So there's three different kinds of people going, three, three different kinds of conversations, three different kinds of problems, three different kinds of people, but the key to all of it is patience. And as the eternal one, Jesus had patience. Jesus had supernatural, amazing patience. And once again, he can give his patience to you. Let's talk about the practical implications of what patience looks like, like in the way that he talks to sinners about their sin. Number one, he operates on a longer timeline, a longer redemptive timeline. I can't stress how important having the right timeline is to live this life well. If you can't make eternity almost as real to you as this, if you can't kind of almost smell it and taste it, if it's not been a, a preoccupation of your mind consistently, 
Friends, you'll find almost no other thing you do, no other discipline you commit to will change as much of your life as creating a homesickness for heaven will. Jesus operated on a different timeline. He didn't need to cram it all into the one conversation or even the one thirty years. Jesus was living for eternity. He didn't expect, this is a practical point here, he didn't expect his admonishment to lead immediately to an aha. That's key. That's key. He didn't think that just because I tell you what's going to happen or just because I tell you what's wrong right now, you should immediately in this moment recognize that what I said is true, respond with repentance and tears and ask for my forgiveness. And friends, if Jesus didn't do that, I don't think we should. Increasingly, as I walk with a group of men doing life with them, I'm seeing this healthy habit come up where there is agitation and run. Agitate and run. Agitate and run. What I mean by that is this. I mean, I want to drop something in your head. I don't even know for sure if it, what, the, what, the, what the absolute picture is here. I just want to say, I've been praying about you. I've, I've, I've seen something. What do you think about this? We don't have to have the full conversation right now. We don't have to reach a conclusion right now. I just want to introduce this into our relationship, into a conversation, and let the grace of God and the Holy Spirit do His work over time to help you to see whether this is true or not. When we operate on a timeline that has plenty of space for the Holy Spirit to work in the other person, it's amazing how things can change. And it's amazing how we don't cross the line into speaking to those who have wronged us wrongly. So a longer timeline, a deeper tolerance. I'm not sure what, to, what really to call this because what I really mean is that Jesus was able to discern the strange mixture of evil and ineptitude that is in every human being. The strange mixture of evil and ineptitude. Now, I've lived with a sinner for 22 years. So has my wife. And there are plenty of moments where we've sinned against each other because we're sinners. And there are other moments when we've hurt each other because we are inept. I've, I've heard a helpful phrase that someone said a long time ago to me. It says, never blame malice for what can be explained by ineptitude. So often when someone hurts us, we assume there's something going on. They did it on purpose. There's something in their heart that's not right, so on and so forth. But you know, another option here is, is that we're human beings broken by the fall and that we are just inept. I see glimpses of this in the way that Jesus treats people. I think when the disciples are falling asleep, there's a glimpse of this mixture of, of condemning the sin, but also being tolerant of and understanding of the ineptitude, of the humanness, of the frailty. I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says later, as we'll see, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And in, in some respect, Jesus was able to, to see the heart of a human being and understand, oh, there's just tons of evil in there. And then it's kind of surrounded by this crispy shell of ineptitude. And let me, let me make sure I remember that this is a human being who just screws up things. 
So, so he operates on a longer timeline. He has this kind of tolerance for this mixture of evil and ineptitude that is the human being. He also just practically shows them what they're doing. Very often, what you'll see Jesus do, and it's really clear in Luke 22, is he'll just describe their actions back to them. Jesus says to Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Why did he say that? Because Judas was about to betray him with a kiss. The chief priests and their entourage come up, and Jesus says, you're coming at me with swords and clubs. I was in the temple, or in the temple like two days ago. You see how he's just describing what's happening? Sometimes we don't need to go any further than that. Just say, this is what's happening. This is what you're doing. How often, uh, as a pastor in, in counseling, have I just said, so, you're, so, so this is what's happening. And, and I will actually repeat what was said. And, and there'll be this moment of like, what? <laughs> we need help hearing ourselves. We need help seeing ourselves. Sometimes we just need a mirror, you know, uh, uh, I, Unfortunately, this new apartment we have, you know, there's a mirror right outside the shower. I mean, it's a great weight loss plan, I guess, or at least a, a plan to embed me in clinical depression. But uh, sometimes we just need help seeing what we're actually doing. And Jesus does that repeatedly. He just says, this is what you're doing right now. But I think this is a huge one, number four. Don't return fill-in-the-blank with fill-in-the-blank. Don't return fill-in-the-blank with fill-in-the-blank. It's, it's so easy when someone sins against us to throw that hand grenade right back at them. It's so easy to return their sin with more sin. It's so easy to turn accusation back with accusation, mistrust back with mistrust. Oh, you think I'm this? Well, let me tell you what you are, and so on and so forth. I get this from 1 Peter 2, 21. It says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, as an, exa- leaving you an example. That's the, uh, the model I was talking to you about. This passage, listen to it. It'll have the model and the means in it. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not return reviling. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That goes back to that John 17 that we were talking about a moment ago. And here's the means part. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me read... Verse 23 again, this is the fill in the blank part. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You could fill revile in with any other sin and you'd be, you'd be golden, right? Uh, He was cut off in traffic, but did not cut off in return. You know, whatever, you know, he was accused, but did not return with accusation. He was lied about, but did not return with lying. He was gossiped about, but did not return with gossip. He was slandered, but did not return with slander. Don't return whatever with whatever. You know, the person who wrote 
First Peter 2, 21 through 25, actually all of First Peter, looks a little different in our text in Luke 22. Doesn't he? Specifically, he's swinging a sword. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. The man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss them. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then those who were around him saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And touched his ear and healed him. No more of this. I'd like to get into every home. I'd like to like, like, like have somebody wire up a no more of this siren in your home. So it detects the decibel level in your home. And then it just blares, no more of this! No more of this! Need that in my home too. When spouse A sins against spouse B, or in this case, spouse C, Spouse Angela, Spouse Chris. Uh, then, then, then the sinning goes back, and the, and and the ping pong match has started in earnest. I want to hear Jesus in that moment say, "No more of this." When someone is revisiting a hurtful word done to them in the past, and they keep retrying this person in the court of their own heart, I want them to hear Jesus saying, "No more of this." When someone at work patronizes or disrespects you and you're rehearsing what you should have said or might say in the car on your way home, I want you to hear Jesus say, no more of this. The gospel deals with sin, but not with a view to your own earthly, immediate, public glory. The gospel deals with sin to the glory of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to the sin of responding to sin sinfully and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer's of your souls. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Jesus, Savior, both the model and the means of this righteousness, we look to you right now and see perfect truth, perfect law, per- perfect fulfillment of law, the absolute perfect standard for one of the most difficult issues in our life. We see how you were wounded repeatedly, but did not return with more wounds. We see how you were reviled, but did not return with reviling. And we say, how'd you do that? You did that because you were operating on a whole different timeline. Your identity was rock solid, secure before the foundation of the earth. And because you loved God, you loved the father and you were seeking his glory in this world, not your own. So you were able to do this because you had this incredible love for the Father and this incredible security in the Father. Or I look out to this morning at mostly friends and mostly people I, I consider my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I just, I just pray as a friend 
would pray for them. God, give them this love. God, help them to see that in Christ they have all the affirmation and approval they need. Help them to see, Lord, that they've been given this amazing opportunity to live another, you know, handful of decades. Whatever. To seek your glory. And in seeking your glory, attain for themselves eternal joy in a way that they would not have had had they not spent their lifetimes seeking your glory. Help them to have a homesickness for heaven. Conjure up in their imaginations, their understanding, what the glories that await them. Make them content to live in this life small. Even in the moments of, of, of disrespect, even in the moments of being misunderstood or slandered, help them to be content to live in this life small, trusting themselves to you, who, after we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, will exalt us at the proper time in a way that we can't even ask or imagine. Lord, penetrate the deepest, most important relationships in our life with these truths. Let us help one another on to godliness by talking openly and lovingly about our sin. Change the way our church relates to one another in this issue. Offer much grace, Lord, a massive buffer of grace. Your word says love covers a multitude of sins, Lord. As we seek to obey you, we're not going to do that perfectly, but we do that trusting that Jesus will give us his righteousness in real time as we walk in the Spirit. Give us grace, Lord. Help us to love like this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, you may be thinking, well, that was a really short sermon. It wasn't that short. We have, uh, as most of you know, and it was mentioned earlier today, I have an announcement I want to share. As most of you know, we're part of a, a network of churches called Sovereign Grace. 